Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep dive into the academic research and behavioral science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behavior. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World, How to Make Changing the World the Greatest Game We've Ever Played. If you haven't already, sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com to get more free resources about how you can use gamification and behavior design to get your community to zero emissions and make it fun like a game. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about probably my favorite thing of all to talk about, which is Earth Imagination Day and the Environmental Imagination And we don't often put together earth and imagination and the environmental imagination isn't really a phrase that's been coined. But what it is, is imagining the ecotopia future. What would be the ultimate, beautiful, inspiring, totally sustainable, biophilic, plant-laden, renewable energy-powered, zero-waste, amazing world that we are working towards? This is something I love to do. It's at the core of my inspiration for my work in climate and sustainability. And honestly, there is nothing I prefer to do than to teach people and inspire people to go forth towards this vision of the beautiful, amazing ecosystem friendly world as a destination or a goal or a vision to work towards as opposed to looking and complaining and getting all down in the dumps about all of the problems, the problem-centric climate doom message. Not saying that we don't need it, it has its place, but we need a lot more of the positive goal-orientated solutions vision in our climate and our environmental movement. And in today's episode, we are going to be talking with another environmental imagineer and educator, Sophie Poizel. I invited Sophie on the podcast because she was the first person ever to host Earth Imagination Week with her group of students that were in about grades three to six. So that's, I think, between about seven and 10 years old in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia at Linfield Elementary School. And what seemed to be a jaw-dropping, epically inspiring, heart-moving success. What these kids came up with for me, and I think for a lot of other people too, was just incredible and inspiring. And in my 20 years of working in sustainability and being a green building engineer in the property industry, nobody, no architects, no engineers, no sustainability people, No one was coming up with ideas and designs anywhere near what this group of nine-year-old children could do. And the way they would write the copy and the prose of the descriptions about their ecotopia futures just blew my mind. I'm like, I got to hire these kids as my copywriters. They made complete ecological worlds in Minecraft with vertical towers of vegetable gardens and electric bike charging stations with beehives all over the city and futuristic clean energy systems. I mean, it was really, really so cool. Sophie is the head of the Lang Walker Academy at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, which is a really cool interactive science and tech museum. She was recently the assistant principal at Linfield Elementary's Learning Village. She has postgraduate studies and research in gifted education, and she's been awarded the Premier's Prize and a high commendation from the Prime Minister of Australia for her work in innovation in STEM-based education. And like all of us here, she is enormously passionate about how to bring sustainability into elementary school education. 
We're going to be talking about the power of the environmental imagination exercises, which is quite the opposite approach of the climate doom model where you freak people out and scare them into maybe taking action. And I'd like you to have a think about how you could add these types of environmental imagination exercises to any of your environmental climate or engagement work. Environmental imagination or earth imagination workshop is nothing exclusive at all. You can host one with your friends, with your own children, with your neighbors, with your classmates at school. You can host one on Zoom at a conference or a meetup. I make all of the materials freely available online. You can download them from my website at katiepatrick.com forward slash imagine. That's how you join the Imagine Project. And everything is free to download when you sign up. And I'm recording this podcast because I want you to host an Earth Imagination Workshop too. I just hosted two of these workshops at my daughter's school in second grade. And honestly, it was the most fun thing I've ever done. The kids go completely bonkers, completely crazy over the solar punk, eco-futures, biophilic cities pictures. The classrooms have really large digital screens in them now. So scrolling through these incredible eco-futures images, like they come up really big on the screen and the kids are incredibly excited to to see them. I have a slideshow of all of my favorite eco-futures, eco-city images, and I present these to the children, showing a bit of a contrast between the old, gray, concrete, asphalt, unenvironmental world And then flipping to the contrast of the biophilic futures, amazing kind of eco Disneyland pictures. And if you tell the story right to the kids, I have this sort of basketball sized earth plush toy. I'm holding this plush toy and showing them a picture of just a boring road or a concrete city and saying, do you think the earth likes this? And they're all like, no. And then I say, well, what if it was like this? And then click to one of these amazing pictures by architects like Vincent Calabor or other solar punk artwork I found online. And then the kids are like, whoa, that's so amazing. Whoa. They just, I couldn't believe how excited they got. They just love it. And then invite them to start drawing pictures of their version of the Ecotopia future. Apart from this just being genuinely fun, if you're an epic fan of eco-cities and biophilic architecture like I am, there is a deep psychological magic in picking up a pencil and drawing a picture of something that doesn't exist yet in the future. This is a key behavioral difference between one-way learning, say where you're listening to a podcast like this, or you watching a documentary, or you are going to a lecture or reading book. This is where you are just absorbing knowledge. When people pick up a pencil or some tools and they actually go about imagining and making and activating that circuit, that is the circuit then trickles down into leading people to change their behavior and ignites that sense of agency that gets them out into the world and taking action. I've seen it happen over and over again, hosting these workshops. It's incredibly special. And it was described in one of my other podcasts by Joshua Wright on his research about getting people to do simple environmental imagination exercises and then tracking how doing this exercise affected their pro-environmental behaviors weeks after and also whether they would engage in a political advocacy task, which was handwriting a letter to a real senator about a real issue. It was voluntary. They didn't have to do it. And what was true 
truly fascinating about his research. It's an amazing episode. Go back and find the episode, if you haven't listened to it already, with Josh Wright on the environmental imagination. But a a key point in his research was that he had two groups of people that he tested. One group did the one-way type of learning. That is, they read a paragraph about what the sustainable, clean energy future would be like. That's all they had to do. Now, the second group had to write their own paragraph and draw a picture. And this is where we understand the magic of picking up a pen and drawing it ourselves. The first group that only read the description of the positive future made a little bit of a difference, but not that much. The group that actually had to come up with the ideas themselves, they made a huge difference both in their environmental behaviours and taking up the opportunity for the voluntary letter writing to the politician. So it wasn't even the focus on the positive eco-futures that was necessarily the causal mechanism that really activated people. It was people doing the creative work themselves, which seems to psychologically go so much deeper than just absorbing more information or even the behavioral psychology of social norms and gamification and that type of thing. Another key piece of research that we want to keep in mind is another study done by Joshua Carlson. It's also back in the podcast if you want to try and find that episode, is in the neuroscience of looking at negative pictures of climate doom, scary, bad things that are going to happen in the future, versus looking at solutions. And he found that when people look at scary, negative pictures of climate doom, the mind's focus actually shuts down and they shift their focus to something else. They actually completely block it out. Whereas when people are seeing pictures of solar panels, wind turbines, vegetable gardens, these solutions type images, they draw people's focus in. And this is happening at the unconscious level. Joshua Carlson's research was testing microseconds of attention. These mechanisms that we're activating, that we're working with in the environmental imagination space are really activating deep neurological networks in a different type of way that is changing people's behavior and the way they are living and existing in the world. We have such a big and fabulous and amazing opportunity to inspire the next generation of children to become eco-evangelists in the most positive and innovative and productive meaning of the term. Currently, children and teens are getting washed with this message of the world is in this really dire space, terrible things are going to happen. Not that that's necessarily incorrect, but we have the opportunity to show them these pictures of these incredibly fertile, beautiful eco-cities and amazing ways of sustainable living at a young age, at the pre-10 years old age, and inspire them with this dream. When I gave these two workshops at my daughter's school to the two different classes, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get any evidence to test whether this was happening, but I really felt like in my soul, like I was changing something real. These kids were never going to see images like this anywhere else. And most people in the world, even in sustainability, often haven't even seen them. And to have them spend an hour drawing all of these environmental concepts into their own artwork and then to be up there in the class and say, well, who wants to be an environmental engineer? Who wants to build an ecotopia? Who wants to build an eco city? And them all being like, yeah, yeah, me, me, yeah. They were so excited and inspired by the idea of being a part of this movement. And I'm going to keep hosting these workshops because it's just so fun. It is so fun. I just can't not do it. 
and it could be fun for you as well. So jump on to my website, katiepatrick.com forward slash imagine, join the Imagine Project, download the resources, have a look through the slideshow and let's kick off this earth imagination revolution. Now let's jump into the conversation with the woman who actually kicked it all off in the first place, Sophie Poizel. Welcome to the show, Sophie. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to our conversation this morning. I think this topic is probably the most exciting from just like an emotional and creative standpoint, but there's probably nothing more that I love to talk about than this. And the project that you did with the kids was just, it just blew my mind. So I'm just thrilled to be able to dive into it. So can you tell me and the listeners a bit about what you did? It was a bit over a year ago. You hosted an Earth Imagination Week or an Earth Imagination Workshop with some tools that I prepared for your students. What did you do? So it's probably one of my most enjoyable, favorite experiences with kids as a teacher, probably to date. For our kids, it was a week-long experience that you kicked off for us at the end of a term-long interdisciplinary unit where the kids were working towards an understanding that sustainable actions and solutions are required to ensure the longevity of life on the planet. So it was connected to all of the learning they'd done previously and this task really enabled them to transfer that learning into this beautiful hopeful culmination of learning over the term. It's important to highlight that we didn't do it as a standalone activity but something that was authentically connected to their learning, something that they were invested in, their parents were invested in and they had a lot of their prior learning to transfer into that task and obviously the work that you had done and the resources that you had created were really pivotal to the success of what the kids created. In a summary of what they'd learnt during the term, they were kind of exploring concepts like sustainability, cause and effect, survival, actions and innovation. And we're in this context where we were learning from home. It was announced, I think, four days before we went back to term three that we'll be doing remote learning. And it'd only be for two weeks. And then two weeks became five weeks, became the whole term. But it was the most beautiful unit to be looking at because it meant that the kids could really dive into the topic create things in their home, things like worm farms and medicinal gardens, whole projects that they dreamt up themselves and had this impact on their families. But we wouldn't have had that brilliant opportunity if the kids weren't at home having these conversations with their parents. But yeah, the beginning of it, it was all about connecting them with nature. A number of our students were lucky to live on the edges of national parks. So they were going for walks in the national parks. Some of them were cleaning up local creeks just out of their own volition during this time. And then building an understanding of interdependence between the living world and the environment. So living things and the environment. They also had to build an understanding of the, their impact on the environment and a sense of responsibility and the empowerment to make changes in their own lives and the lives of their immediate family members. I was listening to your last podcast about social diffusion and I feel like it was really built into this whole experience. We encourage kids to have conversations with their family to really analyse the impact of the actions they were seeing there at home so they were being able to see what was going in the bin, analyse food 
food scraps, analyse the types of rubbish that they were generating, the types of their carbon emissions from driving anywhere was really limited because we're in a 5k radius state where like we couldn't move out of the 5k radius as the government had said because of COVID. So they were really starting to collect all this beautiful data and and like I said, started their own independent projects of worm farms, medicinal gardens, changing the whole way that the family cooked and shopped and creating solutions. One of the students was like, what do you do with um, f- fruit when it starts to go a bit? We're just on the edge of being too ripe when they didn't like eating it that way. So they were coming up with creative ways to, to use that kind of food. One of our year three students began a furniture restoration project. And this was all kind of in the beginning, they were starting to do these things. Another family installed a water tank and solar panels and encouraged dietary changes in the whole family. Probably one of the best learning experiences I've had with kids. And it culminated in that beautiful vision of ecotopias. And I think it was your suggestion too, Katie, they made pledges at the end. So the teachers made pledges and then the kids made pledges as well about what they were going to continue on following the culmination of that term. I forgot about the pledges, but yeah, I'm always banging on about pledges. I feel like they're totally under underutilized. Yeah. Would you talk a bit more about what the kids, the artwork that the kids make? So I gave you guys a, a guided meditation about Ecotopia and yep. like the 12 page PDF of the basic like ingredients of what makes up an eco city. It's on the Imagination Project website. If anybody wants to download it, it's katiepatrick.com forward slash imagine. And it's just got like all the pieces that you need, like all the ingredients if you're going to make a cake, like a green wall, green roof, water tank, solar, avoiding plastic, green infrastructure, drainage systems, and all that kind of thing. And then what did you do then with that tool to get the kids to make stuff? And can you talk a bit through what they made and the mediums as well? Because they yeah. made so many different sorts of mediums. Yeah, they did. The toolkit was brilliant because it was this perfect sort of brilliant checklist of the research that's out there that you compiled for them and it was accessible for them. We gave them a week to create their ecotopia and then they had a chance to present it in smaller groups and then we presented it as a whole year as well across stage years three to six. We gave them your guided meditations, we gave them your toolkit and then we just said to them create something that expresses your understanding of all of this. What is your vision for an ecotopia that we could live in and that they could choose any mode of communicating that. And I think that was kind of a a motivating factor as well being able to have a bit of choice in how they expressed it. So obviously Minecraft is popular with that age group. It's a good platform to be able to create whole worlds. And a number of kids did that. And we had kids, I think, Katie, one of our youngest kids included your energy lollipops in her world tour. But we had kids with whole food spaces that were all plant-based. And these are kids that wouldn't have been exposed to that before. Everything was solar. It was beautiful. But that was one way of creating it. So Minecraft, some of them did artworks of kind of before and after. And I'll share some of these with you, Katie, because it's probably nice for the listeners to see. Some of them made models. Some of them made short animations of what it would be like to live in this place. It was just beautiful that all the students were really engaged and it was this hopeful kind of culmination of learning to move forward from. 
as opposed to the doom and gloom, which we did, to be perfectly honest, we did look at climate and the science and all of that, which is important for them to be aware of. But there was a focus on solutions and actions that we can all take. And the Ecotopias was a perfect way to culminate all of that. I was just amazed by looking at them, how good they were. The most skilled one was Myers Eco, these purple and green towers. And I mean, like I've been in this environmental building world for like 20 years. I don't see any adults do that in my profession. Like back 20 years ago when I used to work with for the most leading engineering companies on commercial buildings. It just wasn't done. And what the kids were coming up with, like I couldn't believe it was so beautiful and so well done. And the intricacy that went into these Minecraft worlds. There's one that's like really well done called Maplestead. And I put it on Instagram and they're just coming up with so many different, like they've got beehives and like vertical garden Mm. towers and explaining how it's all powered by renewable energy. And then there's this crescendo at the end where they come up with this advanced power system that gets like energy from all of like the tree roots and I'm just like you guys should be writing for Star Wars another one called Charlie Topia which just had this incredible futuristic sci-fi writing and I'm like this eight-year-old kid is like a better environmental copywriter than I am I couldn't believe just how good quality and how imaginative what the kids put together was and how much better it is than what I see as an adult I mean, they would love to hear that feedback, Katie. That's so cool. And I've actually been teaching the environmental imagination workshops to adults in a little bit of a different context, right? Ask people to take a photograph of a decrepit urban space near them or find a picture of their city or something and then go into a graphic design program like Canva. Most people can use it. It's really easy even if you've never used it before. And then just like drag and drop like trees and flowers and wind turbines and people have this kind of like almost transcendental effect from it because it somehow triggers a sense of agency in you when you actually go in and you kind of mock or, I mean, in a virtual way, you kind of actually do change the world, the real world, even though it's just on your laptop, but it triggers this sense of satisfaction. It touches something deep in us when we feel that sense of agency and be able to affect the world around us. And it's really beautiful to see what the adults do, but the kids, i got to say, blow the adults out of the water. Did you see any trends or anything that happened with the kids that like surprised you the most about what the kids created? I thought that it was great that they were all excited to to do the task and to be transferring the learning that they'd they'd learnt that term, the discussions they'd had with their parents. And it was beautiful because as a teacher, you're always trying to create these tasks that are accessible to all levels. And the types of scaffolding that you built into that task meant that all of the kids from years three to six could access it. So like you're saying, you've done it with adults. It's just beautiful in that um, it's accessible for, for young kids as well. And the types of imagination that you could see in varying forms was great too. What I'm kind of seeing is a bit of a trifecta of environmental transformation. I think people often tend to think of environmental education as if it's the holy grail, like using this word education, which means that basically knowledge, like we know stuff. When you look into the behavioral sciences, knowledge really isn't enough. You need to really have behavior design and action design. A lot of people really know a lot about the environment. They know about environmental issues and they care, but they don't necessarily lead to action. So I spend a lot of time trying to explain the divide between education design 
and action design are entirely different things. It can help if you have a bit of knowledge or a bit of education to get people to take action, but it's not really necessary. Say, for example, if we were designing an educational project, we would be really concentrating on how much the kids or even adults knew about something. Do you know how many parts per million are in the atmosphere? Do you understand about how photosynthesis works with trees? Do you understand about soil science? Do we know how landfills work and how much plastic is going into landfills or the ocean? This is a knowledge-based approach. But if we're taking an action-based approach. We're looking at things that are more like a five-day challenge or a sticker chart where you get like an earth sticker or a love heart sticker when you do the, the activity or what we were just talking about before, like pledges. If we write down a promise, like I promise to do this, it's really quite light on the education and more heavy on the behavioural science of how you actually get a person to do a thing and looking at social comparison, gamification, that kind of stuff. So they're the kind of two worlds, one of education, one of behavior design, but then there's this third world of also imagination exercises and ideas. And that's kind of like a whole different branch, which is trying to get people to bring their their sort of idea storming mind, their imagination mind, that real sort of inventor, innovator type of mind and cast their mind into the future, into 50 years in the future. How would you like the world to be? And it kind of harnesses something completely different in the psyche than the education mind or the action design mind, all of which are important. How do you see how we can harness these, why it's important to bring in this imagination, this innovation idea storming element, and then also this action design element, which wouldn't really be traditionally thought of as education in that sort of textbook learning type of approach? Yeah, I think a lot of things are changing in learning. I mean, for a long time, inquiry learning isn't anything new, which encourages an action and kind of centre to that is is the idea of taking action. That isn't something new. It's something that's been happening in, in lots of schools around the world for a long time. And that inclusion of action and then imagination, in my view, is just good learning design and kids see the purpose of learning that. And there's generally an authentic audience to share that learning with. So I just see it as good learning design. I think it's maybe a product of the schooling that we both went to where it was kind of learn these facts and do this test. Whereas now, particularly in the last couple of years, there's been this push from technology that's come out to rethink the way we are assessing kids with AI coming out, being able to write kids' essays and all of those things that are being explored right now. And this is just the beginning. But with things like design thinking coming into particularly in New South Wales curriculum, where you're thinking about what is a problem, you're going through the process, and then you're taking an action. And that part of that process is the imagining right at the beginning to create something new. With this Topia task, it wasn't like there was no old school kind of learning that went with it. We were using beautiful articles or images as provocations right at the beginning of the unit to build that understanding of the problems before we leapt into this imagining task because I feel like kids are able to, if they're equipped with that understanding of the problem and how it applies to themselves, their families and their lives, so there's this connection, it means they're able to yeah, obviously understand the problem but then also think about solutions more deeply and feel this real deep sense of purpose in solving that problem. 
So I feel like it's not a one or the other kind of approach. I feel like we need to have explicit experiences blended with the real world task, the taking of action, and then obviously the imagination as key to imagining what that action might be and what our future might be. There's a unit that I'm working on at the moment and it's envisaging Earth. What is your vision of Earth in 2030? It absolutely starts with that and it'll be interesting to see this is with primary students as well what that following so we'll do it at the beginning and we'll do it at the end and see how they're similar or different based on what what learning has happened through the term I think they're all really key parts of of what we do in schools and the processes that our kids go through but yeah I know in some contexts there probably is still the 19th century view of, of education just learn it from the textbook. It's interesting discussing the parallels of how we approach this stuff with children as to what we see in the professional world with everybody's engineers and climate scientists and environmental scientists and sustainability managers. I mean, we have the same problem. It's far more focused on knowledge and an education-based bias with very little attention paid to the action design stuff, which is what attracted me so much to behavioral science and action design. And hardly anything like it's almost hardly exists this imagination world it's a bit exciting I feel like it's starting to kind of crack through the kind of zeitgeist but it's still painfully lacking from our movement and as you were talking earlier you talked about the the systems knowledge-based approach to how you taught this to the kids and it got me thinking that having an innovation inventing idea storming future orientated imagine, I don't even know how to describe it, imagination, vision of the future, it's inherently a systems thinking approach. Like if I think about how I want the world in 50 years, I am thinking about this future vision and you have to think about how all of the systems feed in together, how all the transport feeds in with the water system, feeds in with the thermodynamics, feeds in with the power and the electricity. And it was so cute. A lot of the kids, you could tell people from Australia in slightly more socialist government because a lot of them were like, and we have, they didn't use the phrase universal basic income, but they were like, and the government supplies food for everybody and nobody goes hungry and we have free education for all. I don't know if in America you'd quite, you'd quite get that because it's a little bit more controversial but it was sweet to see that they were thinking about these these social aspects and you get this kind of idealistic unbounded thinking in lots of ways there's not the adult mind there saying oh well that's really hard and I don't think we can do that when you're doing these sorts of engagements with kids they're unbounded by the kind of logistical workings of the world and what is it about the child mind that makes it creatively superior often to the adult mind is there something like in the neuroscience that you know of or I mean there's a lot of research on creativity I think it's this maybe unknowing of the world and how it works that maybe releases those idealistic thoughts I've just had my own personal version of that only actually in the last two weeks in that I've just had this sort of crazy little personal, I don't know, breakthrough, revelation, renaissance or whatever, that for years I've always been thinking like, oh, like I want to work with kids. Or not even I want to work with kids, just when you think about your ideal life and how you see yourself. I just always kind of see myself like talking to high school students or doing something with kids. But because my first job was a corporate property development company, it was very sort of white collar, very top of the food chain. They built large office complexes and it was so far from anything to do with education. And there was 
really big money in it. And then I went on to having a venture-funded media company and then I went on to Silicon Valley. So it was all kind of like in this very wealth-seeking, upward-climbing, you have to get to a billion dollars or whatever. Not that I ever really made it that big, but that was kind of my universe of thought that I existed in. So every time I thought of something to do with kids, I was like, well, you can only do that if you're a teacher and I'm never going to become a teacher or if it's a hobby that you do as like a housewife, like if your husband supports you and then you go and like volunteer at the school and you'll never be able to make any money from that. And if you're a real entrepreneur, you just won't do stuff like that. So that's kind of like somebody else's job. As soon as I had these ideas, I would just clip them off. I'd be like, oh yeah, that's unviable. I'll go back to the Silicon Valley, see what's going on in the climate venture capital space. It's got to be like enterprise software that Google's going to use or whatever. I mean, I think um, there's I a lot of enterprise to... software that could be developed for schools, Katie. So, well, um, your way but yeah, like I just, I was, I didn't realize how much self censoring or self deleting I had going on in my mind. And then I just had a bit of a just like, oh, like sort of like fuck it moment. I'm just like, oh, like some parts of my job I really like, some parts I really don't like. And I was just like, you know what I want to do? I just want to hold an Earth Kids party. I just want to hold a kids party that has an earth theme and I just want to make earth cookies and earth cupcakes and I want to teach kids about kilowatt hours and I don't want to have to worry about whether it is going to make money or turn into something. So I just started coming up with all these activity ideas like exercises and I just was on like a rampage of ideas. This big sort of cataclysmic mental opening that I had was like when I was designing, when I'm thinking up concepts to engage children, my mind is completely open. I'm not putting it through the adult filter of, oh, will it be popular on Instagram? Will it get into the incubators? Will I be able to sell it as a government program? Will I be able to get adult people's attention? What will the captions be for the email list that are going to grab people? What's going to be the click-through rate? There's so many like little qualifiers. Mm. Will, it, will it be an app? Will it be an enterprise software? when you have your kind of natural creative energy and then all these little like entrepreneurial qualifiers just basically butcher it mm. until you've got just this really boring, uninteresting thing. But with the kids stuff, I was just like, oh, like we could do this and we could do that. And I came up with this activity with my daughter where we measured all the watts of every appliance. I got this little meter. It's only $14 off Amazon. And you plug it into the wall with every appliance. And I made these little cards, just did it on my inkjet printer. And then we went around with another kid. We measured everything, all the watts in the whole house. And then I was like, you know what? We need a way to order these. Vacation requires a leaderboard. So then I made this big thermometer just on Canva printed it off, sticky taped it in the back together, and then we ordered 20 of these different cards from the highest to the lowest. And even me being a green building engineer, like I didn't know like what the what draw was for most of our appliances. I mean, I kind of had an idea that the oven was high and the microwave was high and the LED lights weren't, but I didn't know the exact what. So it was super educational for me as well. Then when I put it together in like a kid's activity, and then I have all these other ideas, which will take the whole podcast for me to explain. I'll make another podcast about that. I'll just ramble them off. But I felt like I had the best ideas for environmental engagement that I've ever had because I was existing in the child's mind. I was sort of psychically kind of tapping into like, how do they think? And I wasn't in my adult mind. And I felt that that was like an amazing place to be. And then I also thought, wow, if I can make these really fun activities for kids, like they'll also be fun for adults because I'm not like clipping them down. Like people still go to Disneyland even though they're adults. People still watch Star Wars. People do kids stuff. But it's not like if you design something for kids that it never, ever gets to the adult. This is not a question. This is just me taking up time in your interview to <laughs> just talk about my, my little experience. It's just so fun coming up with 
activities for kids when you try to see it through the lens of it being of it being fun. And I just I just wish more people did that. And I mean, please keep coming up with those ideas and keep sharing them because there will be teachers that are looking for ways to engage with this sort of work. So please, please keep going and share. I'm actually, I'm going to be teaching the Earth Imagination Workshop to my daughter's class on Friday. Yay. Oh, that's awesome. I'm terribly intimidated by a group of seven-year-olds. I do corporate workshops often. They don't intimidate me, the seven-year-olds. I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, like what if they don't like it? Like, No, they'll love you. Anyone coming into a classroom just is like a celebrity. Following on from this idea that kids' activities can be super fun if we don't sort of clip them down into boring adult activities and they can naturally diffuse to the parents, what are your thoughts on these environmental education slash action slash imagination activities being like a really meaningful mechanism to filter out to the whole family rather than just sort of ending with the child itself, him or her or they self. I think it's great. I think there's a lot of research that talks about the parents and the teachers' impact on the kids' learning. But I don't know if there's any research on like families and the impact of the child on the family. But it's certainly what we saw from this program. And we had feedback from parents about all the changes that had happened and the impacts that it had. So I think, yes, I think you should do it. And I think that's a great way for families to be bonding over this stuff and sharing ideas and ways of doing things better. Were there any examples that you remember from actual activities and actions that the families took on? Yeah. Let me just pull up one of the photos I took. I actually got every single one of the kids' examples and made it into its own Instagram post. No, I didn't. It took oh, me ages. Love to see it was that. really time consuming, but it's all there on my Instagram and it's even on a guide that you can get like all, I think there were 18 examples and they all have their own little Instagram slideshow of what the kids wrote in their artwork. Amazing. One of our parents, we asked for feedback following the unit and she said, our child has taught us so much about sustainability and we've made changes in our house and life as a result. We're so excited about what she's learning and grateful for her teaching us. We're putting a water tank in our garden and solar panels on our roof. We've joined a food co-op, which means less packaging and sourcing food from local farmers. We've also started composting and we're doing smaller things such as using coffee grounds and eggshells in our garden, utilising potential food waste such as carrot peels and adding them to green smoothies and roasting pumpkin seeds. I'm also going to try facial recipes we found using eggshell powder. She's informed us that it's great for dogs in their food as well and we're conscious of our waste and how we might minimise it. So that's just from one parent of a year five student. Yeah, I mean, carrot peels in the smoothie, that's yeah. some pretty serious green stuff. I'm yeah, not but sure I mean, I'm that far. But... Yeah, but, <laughs> but I mean, there was so much detail. in there. That's serious commitment, you know. Yeah, yeah. and you can see as a, a someone who's really feeling empowered and like they can make a change, she's changing the way her whole family does things. And it'd be interesting to go back to that family now and see if those changes have stuck. But another another parent wrote that it highlighted the need for their family to eat more vegetables and it's helped them to eat healthier as a family. Another one about restoring outdoor furniture and it brought everyone together, cleaning up creeks and doing that as a family. So this start of new family activities, there's some highlights. 
I think there is such an underrealized potential to work with schools as a way to work with the whole family. Because one of the big problems that everybody in sustainability is facing, all of the cities, the consultants, the NGOs, is really like how do you get out into the community and create engagement? It's a type of marketing. The consultants and organizations whose job this is to do, I mean, they even have a hard time about it. They kind of go to farmers markets and try to sign people up, maybe run some Facebook ads. There's no really easy way to get out into a community and really get everybody together, really tap into people's hearts and minds and actually get in touch with everybody. And even the utilities and the government doesn't directly have a way to get out to you. The energy utility may, or the DMV, what do you call it in Australia, the roads, the RTA, there's basically no single mechanism to get out to all households. The best thing there is to do is a letterbox drop, print something out of paper. Mm. This hugely expensive and wasteful thing Mm. that doesn't necessarily get good engagement. It seems like just working with the schools as this whole family engagement mechanism could be remarkably powerful and underrealized way that goes far beyond this idea of environmental education, which is why I wanted to bring up this idea of these other elements of it, that if you're really looking at action design rather than just knowledge, you really can bring in the family and then look at what the family is doing and bring in these measurement-based gamification approaches for families in groups. So it's amazing to have that like real tangible evidence that you got, that you can actually like really like see it with a real person, with a real family starting to do it. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, yeah, brilliant. And like I said, that I think is why it was one of my favourite experiences because you can do these kind of units of inquiry where uh, the taking of action isn't as as genuine and as beautiful as it was during this process. And did you try any kind of data-driven gamification mechanisms? Like simple ones off the top of my head would be like a five-day sticker chart. Like if you brush your teeth for five days, you do something. Did you measure everybody in a leaderboard, like put everyone's data together? No. I mean, I think there's some things, I guess, to gamification and competition. I think I would proceed with caution with any kind of competition-based things in schools because I know it's a demotivating factor for some kids, particularly girls, and there's literature on that as well. But if it's something, I don't know, internal about your own performance that you're measuring rather than a leaderboard between houses or something, there might be space for that. What about the time-based challenge where you get a sticker or something when you do the activity? Did you do anything anything like that? No. And I think if you look into, and I'm sure you're probably aware of it in your work, the literature around intrinsic motivation, mm-hmm. once you start doing kind of rewards-based stuff, it actually eats away at, away at that. And I think what we got from this unit was kids who were remarkably engaged and wanting to make a difference. So I... I would be cautious to embed any of that in a school environment. What are your thoughts on intrinsic motivation and rewards and that sort of a thing? Um, Yeah, it's really interesting that we've touched on this because I've never spoken about the downside of gamification before in any of my work or the podcast. And the reason why I never brought it up before is because it feels like just not so much thinking of kids, but just as a, as a whole, as a whole world, we're so far behind 
bringing in any of the behavioural sciences into our environmental world, that it would be kind of amazing to have a downside. We've got like a long way to go before we have to be like, whoops, the leaderboard kind of demotivated some people. Yeah. At the moment, like everybody's not motivated at all because we don't even have one. Mm. I'm aware of a another study that was done in the UK. This is with adults to try to keep their storefront closed. I think it was people going in and out of the store because in the cold weather, if the door is left open, it sucks all of the heat out onto the street. And they used a leaderboard approach. And the conclusion was that leaderboards are really good at motivating the people who are right up the top. So top three, top five performers will be motivated, but I'm not quite sure at what stage it kicks in. Somewhere down that leaderboard, it starts to become demotivating but it wasn't a black and white answer. It wasn't like you should not use leaderboards because they're unmotivating. It perhaps means that if you do have your like top five people, you only show it to them, maybe. So you'd be like, hey, like you're in the top five, keep going. And then if somebody is at the bottom, maybe you find a way to not show it to them. Or perhaps you break the leaderboard up so you're only ever having smaller chunks of people so Mm. there's not a sense of like oh my god like I'm like 100 like I'm like way down the bottom of this big group and then people don't want to want to engage so perhaps like splitting the groups up into smaller groups where they don't feel like they're left out as much so it may take some design iteration I mean I've never actually seen this study I think sometimes also you hear about these popular studies that get out into the zeitgeist and get repeated and repeated and then I'm not sure if they're necessarily true like the Stanford marshmallow study I just oh, remember yeah, everybody was, yeah, all the yeah, time yeah. they were like yeah. oh yeah like if the kid eats like two marshmallows it's gonna not do as well in college but then it was found that the study didn't really comprehensively sort of address the nuance of the situation yeah one of the kind of theories that we look at in education kind of research and work is self-determination theory by Ryan and DC, but there's a whole kind of intrinsic motivation research and and a lot of it has been studied within school contexts and it's around how do you get kids to be motivated to want to do something for themselves rather than for a sticker or a reward and it comes up with a whole range of, of things. But there is the study that I hear talked about a lot that is that if kids can be totally excited to draw or to learn something and then as soon as you start giving them like a gold star or a sticker they won't do it unless they get the gold star or the sticker which is a a warning although without myself perhaps really practicing it I'm a, a little bit suspicious about whether to completely buy the message that you should never use gold stars or or stickers maybe it's not really that that black and white and i'm not sure if intrinsic and extrinsic motivation really is as black and white as it can be made out to be are you generally a fan of like if you can intrinsically motivate kids and use no stickers you should just completely avoid them is that your worldview yes yep it would be is that um, what you found that if you do yeah. try giving them stickers and stuff that they yeah and I that, think that it, it does actually reduce the intrinsic motivation yeah I mean I think I feel like stickers are so 90s or something <laughs> like it's something that we grew up with and I don't know many teachers that would use that these days but yeah definitely if you can motivate a kid by doing a rich meaningful task or learning sequence then then why would you add in these these things that don't necessarily motivate them and that's kind of your ideal I'm sure there are kids that benefit from individualized programs and plans around how to get them motivated but certainly having a kind of 
star chart or leaderboard within your classroom is something that I would say is definitely a no-go in terms of best practice. Yeah, and it's different whether you, if you apply it for a learning exercise versus a simple behavioural action. Because when I think about it for myself, like I have a, a deep intrinsic love of learning and that's like a very rich and complex psychological space to inhabit. And it doesn't really feel like gamification would be suitable to try to hatch open what is really like a, a lifelong kind of like romance or love affair with a journey, a mental journey that you're on. How I use gamification in my personal life is to provide accountability to do things, very simple, small behavioral actions that I very easily don't do. Like I gamify my own life for making sure I check my emails every day, making sure I do straggling financial tasks, that I do yoga and that I clean something every day. Or it could be something like brushing your teeth or have you so something just these little things that you can really intrinsically easily motivated to do. <laughs> I am so deeply, intrinsically unmotivated to do any of these things, no matter how hard I try. And there's no complexity to them. It's just a kind of enforcing a bit of discipline. And my gamification isn't really a reward. Like I I do use stickers, but they're just color-coded. If I do nothing, if I do no yoga, no emails, I have outstanding bills and the house is messy, I get red. I get an orange one if I do yoga. I get a yellow one if I do yoga and emails. I get a green one if I do yoga and emails and finances are all up to date. And then I get a blue one if I also clean the house. And so that's how I get a blue sticker because these are the things that I just very easily will let go for a month and do none. And I'll be like, oh, three weeks later and there's 500 emails and everything's in piles. There's just fundamentally just no intrinsic motivation there and there probably never will be. So it's like a little system to help enforce it's things. It's like a to-do list or something. Oh some sort of version of grading your to-do list? I mean, I really started it with a sense of, or the kind of the theory that I do all my design work from is like disclosure first. The first step is to get the data and to put it out there. And I was actually designing a system for a client. They wanted me to come up with some ideas for how to get chefs to come up with recipes that were more plant-based. And it was the same system. I like, well, you give them a red sticker if it's got a lot of meat. You give them an orange sticker if it's got a bit less and then a green one and then a blue one. And then every time they do it, you've got to put a big chart on the wall and you just give them a sticker. You're not necessarily (laughs) telling them what to do, but you're just starting with this data disclosure system map it out, put the data out there, and 50% of your work will be done by just tracking the data and disclosing it. That's it, just track the data. And colour is an easy way to do that. And then I was like, you know what, I might start doing this for my for my weak spots. With that, it's not really like trying to give somebody like some shiny, sparkly little sun face. It's just really measurement and disclosure which you could do with families, like did we do the recycling properly, did we compost, eco-activities around the home, that we could track our progress. It's got a lot more to do with that than giving you some sort of reward for learning something, which I think is a really different domain to kind of habit tracking. There's very simple, simple actions. But it's cool to get into the nuance of all this stuff because when you're designing it, you have to really try to think about these nuances in detail because if you don't get it right, you can mangle it and it won't work. It either won't work or it can be like have a have the, the opposite effect. Yeah. But it's interesting that you say that you would keep away from it where possible with schools. Yeah, just yeah, just moving away, I guess, from competition. I mean, within your family, it's something you could do to data track. Often just comparing people to each other is good, not necessarily in a competitive way, but just 
a sense of like we're all putting our data out there to be accountable to each other. Say, for example, if you had a group of seven families and all the seven families agreed that they would have an API that tracked their electricity consumption or their gasoline consumption, then they would all have this, for example, automatically on a leaderboard just within their own group. And the idea wasn't framed as we're all going to like be like cutthroat competitive, like who can get down the most and then win a prize and then the loser gets shamed. It's really just a sense of let's all work together to figure out how to get our data down. And by sharing each other's data, we can help to start problem solve this as a group when we're looking at it all and starting to see like, wow, I did a big cleaning day the other day and I did, I don't know, like 10 loads of laundry. And then I logged on to my electricity interface and it was like three times as high as normal. And I was like, what happened that day? And I was like, oh, it's my cleaning binge. And I was like, wow, I thought the, the dryer and the washer were kind of, they're kind of small. I didn't think they really used that much. But by just looking at the data, you can sort of see these outliers and it helps you kind of problem solve. So when I see these leaderboards, I think of them more as a problem solving mechanism than let's all be like. Yeah, get down the lowest, forward. be the winner. <laughs> Pouring our way to the winner and shaming the losers. I see it far more through a disclosure lens and a problem-solving lens. Maybe it it needs a a different name then instead of a framing, different frame. I'll call it the problem-solving chart. (laughs) (laughs) The non-competitive problem-solving chart of data in order. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or follow the leader. Lead by example. They'll be the best one and it will be like the person at the top must now mentor all the other people to bring them up so we all arrive at the yeah. goal together. Yeah, like environmental mentor board or something. Yeah, environmental mentor board because <laughs> environmentalists are generally very like sort of kind communal type of people so yeah. they do get put off a bit by the by the leaderboard concept. What kind of potential do you see in investing in this 7 to 10-year-old age group of children as a serious approach to environmental change that can meaningfully affect the future of humanity? It's a big question. <laughs> I think the earlier we build in opportunities for kids to see themselves as agents of change, having impact on even their close family, relatives, I think the earlier the better. Um, and I think kids are inherently good and want to do good and idealistic and I think it's about building their understanding and then motivating and supporting them to imagine design and then take action so I think the potential is huge and as we've seen from working with you in this building of ecotopias that that diffusion from student to parent and then the impacts of that that there's great potential. I just get a get the hunch when I remember what I was like at that age and how much I've done with my own daughter, that seeding this particular age group could be enormously powerful if it was taken, really taken seriously, because it's really hard to get out to adults once they're already like in their world. And if you can create that deep transformation with somebody, like I was deeply transformed by the time I was 10. I was like down, I was saving the tree, saving the whales, saving the dolphins. Yeah. Like I was converted just by the ambient, not and not by my parents. It was just the ambient environmental marketing that was around in the 1980s. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of Greenpeace. There was trees being cut down on the news, the whales. It just all got to me, and I just really cared about it. Yeah, and so my whole life has been about that. And we talk about wanting to make change happen quickly now, 
and things have to move fast and climate change and whatever. I mean, if you can really tap into that age group where it's going to be really salient, who knows what these kids are going to be doing in 10 or 20 years? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more that we can make these connections, I mean, I think I found you on social media, but this bringing industry expertise into schools, teachers are really time poor in some schools. They probably don't have enough time to be across all the literature and particularly in primary schools. You're teaching across all discipline areas and to have the time to know what is happening in that field, what is best practice, what are the questions that industry is trying to solve, to have experts come in and share that knowledge with the teachers but also with the kids I think is is critical in terms of building the next generation of problem solvers and change makers. I was just remembering when I gave my guest lecture to your kids and then they came back with the questions and it was so fun. They were the best questions that I've had and I've given that same guest lecture to the UN, to the European Union, to loads of companies, to Google. I've given that guest lecture a lot and the kids came up with really cool questions. I think one asked me what the embodied carbon dioxide was through creating a, like keeping your own fossil fueled car versus, and then melting it down versus creating a new electric vehicle. I don't actually really know what the embodied carbon is for (laughs) melting down an old vehicle and turning it into a new electric car but it's a good question it and is it's a great really question and imagine a primary teacher who hasn't had the experiences that you have and the learning that you have in that in your space to try and answer that question and this is why the expert dialogue and connection and partnership is really important but the kids iq seems like pretty legit do you think that where the iq is at at the that sort of eight to ten year old is pretty comparable to an adult. It seems to be from what I can see. I mean, I've got a background in, in gifted ed and probably need to do a bit of reading on that. But I mean, I think to have a binary between adult and student or child, adult and child, it's kind of difficult. I think depending on the way you present certain concepts, kids are going to have some way of, of making sense of it. And working in a years three to years six environment and they were the kids that you were speaking to you've got a whole range of kind of IQ but I think once you've engaged them as someone who's interested and motivated and wanting to make a change I think it doesn't matter what their IQ is they're going to get something from those rich conversations. Mm. What I was really trying to sort of get at is that We tend to think that these complex scientific and engineering conversations perhaps can't be grasped by an eight or nine-year-old, but I think they can understand most of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes down to how you explain it. But yes, absolutely. They can understand complex concepts. They just need to be done in the right way. And can even have a more sort of creative and curious attitude to the concepts like I experienced from your your kids' questions that were a lot more fun and interesting to answer than the ones I get from grown-ups, which tend to be usually like, why do we need to look at individual change when we need systems change? And the other one about leaderboards, should we really compare people together because it might turn them into savage, competitive, evil demons kind of tend to be those two kind of questions okay. a lot a lot of that yeah, as you know as well as well as some others but the more like creative ones about like the embodied energy of melting cars I was like that's cool like I want to go and go and figure that out yeah and that's so cool to hear that feedback I'm sure you know 
that kids would love to hear that. And so how can people who are perhaps environmental campaigners, even people who work on startups or create content, people in government, how can we better work with kids and utilise this incredible resource? The future of humanity, these kids, but also the school system. You've got school districts, you've got schools. They're very highly organised, structured, and they're also these funded institutions that we can tap into that it feels like we're just not tapping into anywhere near what we could. Yeah, I think that's pretty challenging because it depends on the school system and then the school in particular and whether they're focused on that work. I think generally, I feel like in my own experience, I've been a teacher that's been reaching out to experts to do this kind of work, but the teacher needs the time to be doing that. One of the teachers I met in the States did this great thing that I always wanted to do and I never got around to doing where she invited all the parents of her class in to do a talk about their career and they had to lock in a time in the first term. And that was brilliant in terms of opening up ideas for kids and what they thought their potential career pathways could be. But it was also an insight for the teacher to be able to then think about, well, I'm looking at a a unit on X and now I know an expert that I can bring into the classroom who has a vested interest in the outcomes of, of what they were doing. If you're a parent, obviously get in touch with your teacher, talk to them about what you do, be brave. But if you're kind of a company, it's I think it's quite difficult because there's so many things out there at the moment and so many kind of short-term competitions and and long-term competitions for schools to be involved in that take kids away from curriculum. Some of the work I'm doing at the moment is looking at industry partners and how we work with teachers to co-design and pilot learning sequences around curriculum because that's the stuff that teachers need to do and need to do now. And with the teaching crisis that we have here, and I'm pretty sure it's similar in the States, a lot of those extras that teachers would have in the past jumped at. At the moment, everyone is just really strained. So where things can be connected to curriculum is better. And I mean, environmental stuff links beautifully. So I think if you're a parent, be brave, get to know your teacher, teacher of your kids and, and offer ways of connecting with what they're doing. And if you're in industry, look for those avenues where you can co-design stuff with teachers and build partnerships approached my teacher and she was very excited to have me come in, but I don't know what it would be like if I didn't actually have a child that might feel a little bit more daunting. But I think our city of Mountain View, I think there's four or five people that full-time work on sustainability at the city. The city is also another established institution which can potentially work with the school district to help with this kind of parent outreach. And you've also got the after-school programs. I think most schools have after-school programs. I emailed the principal and she said, I can host something during the lunch hour. Now, I'm not sure if kids want to sacrifice their lunch hour to come and hang out with me talking about environmental science and engineering. Yeah, Um, But that was a potential. Like she said, come and I can host something. I can either rent a classroom after hours, which I think I'd have to pay for, but it's not that much. It's only like $50 an hour. And I can actually do it privately somehow, or I can do it as a volunteer during the lunch hour. So, I mean, that's on on offer if anybody wants to do something. It is in my school district doing something like that. Yeah. I mean, that sounds great. And lots of schools would have some form of a, a green team or an environmental group that would probably meet regularly 
at lunchtime. So there is something like that that you could probably jump in on and help build strategies across the school because sometimes in schools those strategies end with kind of sorting garbage and doing a, a, a garbage audit or something to get kids to take those next steps. I think with help from people in industry would be awesome. Thinking about if I'm the one who's coordinating it, like I could bring in people from the startups. Like we have in Silicon Valley, there's just so much technical intelligence here and wisdom from all of the companies. There's also so much money here as well. You don't really realize how much money there is here until you live here and you see how much money there is from the, from the technology. But there are a whole lot of startups working in electrification, electric vehicles. Tesla's got their, their factory where they make the Teslas just across the bay. Mm. You've got Google, LinkedIn. I mean, they're not necessarily environmental companies, but they still have sustainability people. And then there's a whole bunch of smaller startups and technology companies working in electricity, et cetera. And then just the contractors, the people who install the solar panels and take out the gas. And I don't know if there's anyone who builds permaculture gardens, but there's probably some people like that as well. And you can kind of like round them up and they may be willing to contribute just like a once-off workshop for kids. Do you think the kids would want to come to something at lunch? Absolutely. Yeah, they go to so many things at lunch. Well, kids in Australia do. I'm not sure about the States. I'm sure they're probably similar. But, yeah, some of our kids have something on every lunch, which you've got to encourage play as well. But, uh, yes, if, if they're motivated and interested in it, yes, they'll make time. And, I mean, you can make environmental stuff so fun. I'm going to go and put all of my environmental activities into little workshops so people can see how fun it is. I even have a like a thermal camera. It's $400. It's a little thing that goes on my iPhone. And then you can take videos of thermal photography, of seeing how hot things are. So in summer, whenever it's hot, I take it out and I'm just like, oh my God, like the road is 85 degrees Celsius. This is shocking. And then I go over to the tree and like the tree and I'm like, oh my goodness. Something like that is a really fun activity. How you can go and measure the surface temperatures of all of the different things. And it was a way of like understanding the urban heat island effect. And I mean, I think there's probably, you're talking about working with the, uh, you call it the city over there? Oh, yeah, they use the word city here instead of council, Yeah, but it means council. Yeah, so I think... They call it the city of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. so I think some of those, some cities or councils are looking to use, develop like smart places and use technology to better environmental goals. So I think having kids involved in the design of that might be a cool project and then that could be transferable and scalable across different cities or councils. I even have a, I kind of lashed out a couple of years ago, slightly regretted purchase, and I bought a electric pink Lamborghini, like a small one Whoa. from Amazon. I just thought it was so cool. I was like, I just can't live without a miniature pink <laughs> Lamborghini for my daughter. But then I realized we lived in an apartment and then I had to carry it. It's quite big and heavy up and down three flights of stairs if she was ever going to play with it. And then when I'm down there, you're right, kind of in like a parking lot where it's not great to have like a miniature car with a child in it. So I slightly regretted purchase, but I thought I've got to make the most of it and I'm going to take it to the Earth Day festivals here and put a picture of an Earth on it for the kids to have like free EV charger rides because the city is offering an electric vehicle that you can test drive. But I mean, why not have like a miniature one if you have like a three-year-old? Just another example of how we can make electric vehicles fun with the Mm. pink Lamborghini. It does look really cool. I'm going to put like an Earth or like an electric 
sign on it or something like that, take a photo with the kid and send it to the parent, something like that. But anyway, thank you so much for having this conversation and thank you for reaching out to me a while ago. You're the person who actually made all of this earth imagination stuff happen with your group of students and actually brought it to life. An amazing act of environmental leadership, Sophie. Oh, thanks, Katie. And I mean, obviously it wouldn't have happened without you creating all of these brilliant resources and talking to our kids and receiving their questions and, and all of that. It was a brilliant experience for our kids and for our, our teachers and the professional learning that happened because of that so thank you and thanks for giving me this opportunity to to relive it all after a little while it's been it's been nice to revisit all of it so thanks i hope it will keep keep on which is what i'm i'm hoping it will it will do and i've got my chance to try it on for the first time this friday with my little classroom brilliant i hope it all goes well I'll, i'll let you know i'll take some photos and hopefully i can share them if the parents will let me is there anything else you wanted to add before we sign off any thoughts that you have about environmental education getting kids into this stuff imagination there's just so much work to be done in this space work and play i guess to be done in the space and the more that we can connect with experts in the field and support teachers the better so thanks for the work that you do 